Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, Mr. and Mrs. North America and all the ships at sea. This is Philip Terzian, literary editor of the Weekly Standard, with my weekly podcast on the books and arts section of the Weekly Standard. And this week, we are looking at the October 6th issue, which is currently on the newsstands, as they say. And um, the lead piece this week Uh, which I commend to you highly, is a delightful essay um, by Susan Crystal uh, on uh, the Loeb Classical Library, uh, which which is a multi-volume. Offhand, I don't know how many volumes, a couple of hundred, I guess. Uh, Well, actually, 520 now looking at the text. Um, But 520 volumes of classical literature, which has been published over the last century by Harvard University Press, and it has just gone digital, which is a great moment in American scholarship. The Loeb Classical Library, um, you probably know even if you don't recognize the name, it's a a collection of translations of classical literature, which including both literature and history and, and some theology, in fact, and other things, but from the classical era. Um, uh, Greek and Roman texts. Um, the distinctive thing about them, well, there are two distinctive things about them. One is they're, they're rather small in size, or compact, as it were, and they all look the same. The dust jackets and the volumes themselves are all uniform. The only, the only difference is that the red dust jackets are Roman literature, and the green dust jackets are Greek literature. The Loeb Classical Library was, in fact, we had a piece um, within the last six or eight years on the centennial of the Loeb's. It was started in the early 20th century with a bequest from a man called James Loeb of the Loeb banking family of New York, who was a kind of gentleman classical scholar. Um, And uh, it has been um, in business ever since, and of course, since it was founded in the early 19th century, um, well, I should <clears throat> I should back up just a moment to say that the other distinctive uh, fact about the lobes is that they, especially convenient to students, because on the left-hand side of the page uh, is the text in the original Greek or Latin, and on the right-hand side is an English translation. Now, because the lobes are a century or so old, the um, some of the translations tend to be a little archaic, and so over time um, they have been um, uh, revised or, or retranslated. And of course, over time, too, uh, more and more titles have been added. Um, but it's a tremendous scholarly resource, and of course, not just for scholars. It's a, it's a tremendous um, pleasure for readers, especially if you're interested in, in the classical world. But all the great texts are there, and Susan Crystal, who has a, a doctorate in, in classical philology, um, tells some very amusing and interesting stories about how, well, first of all, how difficult it was in the good old days to um, do research in classical texts when you were even in a place like New York, where she's describing where um, <clears throat> you would have to traipse from one library to another or get loaned from this library to that. And Anyway, it was often very difficult to... <clears throat> excuse me, track down texts. And, of course, obviously, the 
digitization of, uh, of the Loeb Classical Library makes this all, puts this all, this tremendous resource online and puts the Loeb at, uh, at one's fingertips, as it were. And she also tells some interesting stories about the stewardship of the, of the Loeb over the decades by Harvard, uh, who was in charge of them, uh, some of the politics of, uh, of the, of the series and, and other things. Um, uh, not just for fans of the classics or people with an interest in higher education. It's a, it's a charming and delightful and, and a very informative piece, which I think you will enjoy very much. Which is followed also by another uh, good piece um, by Martha Bayless, who is another contributor to our pages and author of a recent book called Through a Screen, Darkly, Popular Culture, Public Diplomacy, and America's Image Abroad. I asked her to review this book, um, which is called Age of Ambition, Chasing Fortune, Truth, and Faith in the New China by Evan Osnos, published by Farrar, Strauss, and Giroux. Uh, Evan Osnos is a young correspondent who has reported from China. But the thesis of his book, or at any rate the subject of his book, is um, we in America have a long, uh, very long, um, uh, if I may say, infatuation with China dating back uh, to our own uh, classical era, as it were, but certainly accentuated in the 19th century with the arrival of American missionaries in China. But there's been a U.S.-China relationship, formal and informal, for a very long time. And America has historically had a kind of sentimental attachment to China. And in the few decades since, well, roughly since the, I guess, since the opening to China, certainly since the death of Mao, and since China has moved into a kind of um, what I call fascist, which is to say a kind of um, capitalist system uh, in military uniform, an authoritarian uh, free uh, capitalist system, not exactly free market, but however you want to describe the hybrid capitalism that obtains in China has brought Americans back in roaringly high numbers into China. And, and Osnos's book is kind of about how we perceive China, uh, that it's, it's still a communist dictatorship, it's still basically a totalitarian state, and yet we have a kind of sentimental attachment to China that we don't have to uh, Russia or other authoritarian uh, systems. And um, because we're doing business in such uh, colossal numbers with China, we tend to we tend to rationalize certain things and look things, uh, overlook things that we would otherwise not elsewhere. And of course, the Chinese, in their own way, have developed this this kind of weird system, as I say, where they retain the the uh, the security trappings of an authoritarian communist state combined with a kind of weird pop cultural capitalism and a huge industrial expansion all in, in kind of under free market uh, principles. Uh, it's, a, it's a kind of fascinating story. And our changing perception of this China is basically the subject of the book. And Martha Bayless describes it all uh, in very succinct and very interesting uh, fashion. Uh, I think you will learn a lot reading the piece. James Matthew Wilson, who teaches English at Villanova, has written for me a splendid review
of a new book of poetry by a, an older poet, but who has not published very much, called Charles Hughes. And the book is entitled uh, Cave Art. And the only, the only detail I will furnish is that Hughes is himself, in, in poetry as in all uh, realms of literature, there are schools. And one of the more interesting ones in American poetry at the moment is what's called the New Formalism, which is a kind of reversion to more classical, more familiar, even in some degree archaic, verse and metrical forms. And he's a practitioner of that, which James Wilson very nicely describes and gives some very pleasant, I think in some ways, moving excerpts from from Hughes's work, which I think you might find of interesting, which is followed by a review by Anthony Paletta, another contributor to our pages, who also writes a, 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 a business column for the Wall Street Journal. The book is from the Harvard Press. It's called American Railroads, Decline and Renaissance in the 20th Century by Robert E. Gallimore and John R. Meyer. Um, I happen to be one of those people who uh, very much enjoys um, uh, railroad travel, but doesn't know a great deal about the economics of railroading. And Anthony Paletta has described it all um, in a uh, delightfully accessible fashion and has explained the extent to which the American economy still is very dependent on the railroads, uh, other things such as how containerization revolutionized uh, rail transport and commerce, and also how the invention of Amtrak um, uh, relieved private railroad lines of passenger uh, traffic, and allowing them to concentrate on, on freight rail, which has allowed them to, to, to thrive in our modern world. So we have a kind of interesting two-tiered railroad system um, not perfect by any means, but much healthier, I think, than, than we tend to think, certainly than I was aware, um, the extent to which railroads are really uh, doing quite well uh, economically and how we're benefiting from that uh, as a country. That's followed by a piece by Jay Weiser, who, who writes for me frequently on business topics, although not, not always, and not in this uh, instance. It's a kind of interesting book by a an Englishman named Daniel Hannan, uh, a member of parliament, in fact, um, entitled Inventing Free Freedom, How the English-Speaking Peoples Made the Modern World. Um, one of those delightfully expansive subtitles that books seem to have these days. But Hannan is, um, I suppose I should preface it by saying that Hannan is very much a Eurosceptic. He tends to think that civilization is is um, more fully realized in the British Isles than elsewhere in Europe. And for all I know, maybe it's true, but it's a kind of celebration of of what he calls the Anglosphere, the English-speaking world that um, we're, of course, a part of. And, of course, the globe is covered by cultures and societies that speak English and are inheritors of the English traditions of uh, law and culture and religion and other things, and how advantageous this tends to be for those societies. Um, uh, um, um, I, I, I will, in fact, to illustrate this, let me read the final paragraph of, 
of Jay's piece. While the Anglosphere's model of liberty and democracy has not been Hannon's struggle of virtuous Whigs against autocracy, many groups did push for greater freedom over the millennium. Their achievements are not diminished, even if they sometimes acted as grasping monarchs, oligarchs, uh, or heron folk Democrats, a term I won't tax you with the meaning of, since it's explained elsewhere. The Anglosphere's legacy of channeling conflict into free institutions where winners cannot take all remains a light under the world. Anyway, it's a, it's a very interesting defense of, of what we might call the Anglospheric civilization in the world, its benign influence on human society and, and the extent to which we as Americans have benefited from it. And one addendum to that is the following piece uh, by Judith Ayers, who is an editorial assistant here at the Standard, uh, entitled C. Jane Wright, The Timeless Appeal of Austin Mania. Um, she attended a uh, outdoor uh, screening of um, uh, the film version of uh, Emma, one of Jane Austen's novels, and uh, it was done at a at a uh, park in in Georgetown in Washington D.C. and of course attracted a fairly large number of people and got her to thinking about the the sort of timeless appeal of Jane Austen's novels um, over. Uh, over cultures, over societies, across age, sex, gender, you name it, boundaries, um, and how the novels, uh, the sort of novels of manners written by this um, uh, rather quiet, unmarried Englishwoman who died in her early 40s uh, in the early 19th century, who was basically an 18th century individual, speak to us in the modern world as they have spoken to us across time generally and are still sources of delight and and interest over time. John Podhoritz's movie review this week is This Is Where I Leave You, which is a kind of it's one of the it's it's based on a popular novel of a few years ago by a writer called Jonathan Tropper, and it's one of those films that has a a kind of multi star cast, including Tina Fey and uh, Jason Bateman and and even Jane Fonda making a rare appearance. Um, I will tantalize you with by saying that John um, read the novel, which he had not read before, before seeing the movie, and his reaction to the two of them is, as always, both trenchantly and entertainingly expressed. So with that note, I thank you very much for listening in. Um, this week's podcast, and I very much look forward to speaking to you again next week. Thank you, and goodbye.